and uh, I get to teach the Bible almost every week here, which is a great privilege for me. And uh, we're going to talk about the reality that Jesus is no longer in the grave, and the church said, Amen. Amen. Hey, um, I want to just mention a couple things here and, and do one really special, unique thing here in a moment. Um, one is, you know, this place doesn't just show up this way. Just so you know, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of prayer, and a lot of work to set up for a service like this. And uh, we had a, a bunch of people volunteer to get those donuts together for you, create a donut wall, got a photo booth out there. Uh, this last week, there was a gentleman who was in the parking lot, spent two hours picking up every little bit of trash just so the parking lot would look beautiful for you this morning. Takes a lot of effort to vacuum these chairs, uh, to clean up this room and set it up, and then obviously to have a special song and a great worship team. Could you please just give all our volunteers a round of applause? And and then uh, what we're going to do next week, uh, which we think is just a tremendous way to segue uh, after this service, uh, is next Sunday night at 5.30 p.m., we're kicking off a teaching series on how to study the Bible for yourself. And so if you've been wondering what it looks like to study God's Word and understand how to open it up and, and read it and, and then to actually apply it in a way that's correctly, this would be a great uh, gathering for you. So 5.30 p.m. next week. And then this, uh, before we get into the message, a really kind of special moment here we have. You know, I don't know how many of you remember, but there's a few years there where our youth pastor and his wife were praying that God would give them a baby. And uh, they, they didn't think they were going to ever be able to get pregnant. And they were looking into uh, the fostering process and adoption process. And, uh, and not that long ago, they, they just had a brand new little baby boy named Riker. And I get to dedicate him this morning. And so <clears throat> I want to introduce you to, to him and his family. So come on up. And uh, we're, I'm going to share with you guys a little bit what we're going to do here. This is, this is John. No, he is not Muslim. He is a Christian. <laughs> and uh, this, <laughs> this is his beautiful wife who is uh, who's way better looking and less hairier than he is. And, um, and then obviously this is Riker Thomas. <clears throat> so here's how we do this. We... Um, we recognize that any of the acts that we perform outside of the, the verbal act of faith and believing in Jesus, nothing miraculous happens here. What John and Sam are doing is they're standing before you as their church family, and they're saying, hey, we want to raise our child according to the word of God, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we want your accountability to that. And so we do that in kind of a covenantal way. And, and so what I ask of John and Sam as I say, John, Sam, are you asking and are you willing to be held accountable to raising beautiful little Riker here according to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you said, yes, yes. You can say, I do, like when, you, when, we, got, when we did your wedding. You remember that? The I do, yeah. Uh, and then, hey, we, we also, we recognize, hey, it takes, it takes a community to really raise a child well. Uh, I know my wife and I, we got four kids. We're thankful for the community we have because all of you share with us how sinful our kids are and then we get to go home and share the gospel with them on a regular basis and they're asking for the same thing so church family would you also covenant with john and sam to help them raise little riker here according to the gospel of jesus christ and the word of god and the church said you do praise the lord so just like jesus was dedicated in the temple i'm gonna grab a little riker here what's that yeah you can have your whole family come on up stand with you we're going to pray for him, and man, who did I, he is so much smaller than the last baby I dedicated. 
The other one just, he eats. Look at this guy. Awesome. Good to have all of you guys up here with us. Thanks for coming. And let's pray for Riker. Lord, we, we recognize the beauty of life. It is a true gift, and you've given it to Riker. You've brought a miracle into the Amon family, Lord. And to you, we rejoice and say thank you, and all praise be to you. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen John and Sam over the years to journey with this beautiful soul, to raise Riker according to your word and according to understanding the great gift of grace you give him. Pray for our church to rally behind them, to support them and lift them up. And we pray that you would do everything in your sovereignty and providence to lead Riker to salvation, Lord. And we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. All right, dude. Man, you, I could preach with you. No problem. <laughs> no problem. Until he burps or does something else. Then that point we have him. All right, give them a hand. Love you, man. Love you. Um, I want to share some fun things, and then I'll, I'm going to share some things that are worth celebrating. Um, don't worry about that this week, guys. Thank you in the back there. Um, uh, a, cu- a couple things about Easter. So Easter's a big deal, uh, not just for those of us who call ourselves Christians, but for the world as a whole. So I want to give you some, some fun facts uh, that, first of all, 80%, this is from a Forbes uh, article, 80% of adults will celebrate Easter. Uh, 87% of parents will get Easter baskets for their kids, uh, which translates into, just for Easter alone, 16 billion jelly beans. Uh, a, a family uh, in the first service shared with me that their child yesterday ate 16 billion jelly beans and uh, had quite the stomach issue this morning. Uh, probably the most colorful vomit you've ever seen. Um, uh, in addition to that... Um, uh, it, it is said that uh, 66% of Americans prefer solid chocolate bunnies than hollow. <laughs> A- out of those who prefer chocolate uh, 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 <laughs> bunnies, 89% of them believe that the correct way to eat a bunny is from the ears first, <laughs> which is kind of fun. But outside of that, uh, for those of us who understand the implications of Easter, uh, as far as Christianity is concerned, one billion people today will gather worldwide to celebrate the event and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That translates to just over 50% of Americans. It also uh, translates to this great reality that because, because Jesus is no longer in the grave and he is resurrected, it has made the Bible the best-selling book for over 360 years. Unbeatable, by the way, which is pretty amazing. Because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, it, just a couple really neat things for our church, for those of you who are visiting. We gave over 200 boots to those in need in our community. We assisted with nine children in foster homes, uh, helped three other children to be reunified with their families, saw two adoptions within, within our Foster the Sierras ministry. Over the last year, uh, our church gave $20,000 to the, those who were in need for the Santa Rosa fires. And then in addition to that, another 55000 to assist for those in the Paradise Fires in the name of Jesus because Jesus is alive. Amen? We also, I'm not done. I got more for you. This is some good stuff here. Uh, over 1,000 were in attendance in our, v, our uh, Trunk or Treat event. Uh, several hundred uh, people were impacted through our Night of Bethlehem event, 500 plus. Largest VBS 
to date. Over 20 families were supported through Angel Tree. We've had countless Bible studies for men, women, and community groups, youth group, uh, Awana. Uh, and then in addition, to that, outside of the church and all of that, we've given 15% of our budget as a whole to missions. L- listen to the dollar amounts just in the last year because Jesus is no longer in the grave. 61 and a half uh, it, to, uh, to those that we partner globally, $61,000, just over $61,000 to missions outside of the church to, those that, to an organization that helps impact the world. In addition to the $61,000, we gave $67,000 to those that we support specifically. We have a list of those on our website and outside uh, to missionaries that we support. And then another almost $20,000 just for benevolence needs in our community alone, which translates to well over 15% of our general budget, all because Jesus is no longer in the grave. Isn't that worth celebrating? Amen. So my attempt this morning uh, is to celebrate this reality that Jesus is no longer in the grave, that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. So I'm going to give you four points this morning. This is where we're going to journey through. Point number one, I want to give you a picture of our problem. I'm sorry, point number one, a picture of, of, uh, of the problem. Number two, a glance at the cross. Uh, number three, a peek into the empty tomb. And then number four, a glimpse of a life lived with purpose and joy. Picture of the problem. This is the part everyone loves. You are a sinner. Now, I know that doesn't go well in a society that tells you that, you know, you should embrace uh, self-esteem uh, and self-worth Uh, However, we recognize, I think by and large, as a culture, uh, I think whether you believe in Jesus or not, you probably can can at least relate and agree with the reality that we live in a world that is broken and that is fractured and that there's something wrong. In fact, when I was driving into church this morning, I've I've shared this with our congregation before, I listened to a radio program that talks about health. Now, uh, those of you who live in the the Tahoe, Truckee area, you know that the town of Truckee has embraced a brand new slogan just over the last couple years. And the slogan is that we are a base camp to a big life. Yeah? And so we know that in the Tahoe Truckee area, man, we, we're a healthy group of people. We like to be healthy. Several of you in the room are vegetarian. I don't understand you, but you are. <laughs> right? We had a few people this morning. Which one of those donuts are vegan? I said, I have no idea. That's a question I've never asked before any meal ever. <laughs> Uh, but I was told that there are some healthy options out there for you. There's some fruit out there for those of you who graze like deer. Now, <clears throat> we, we, we are very healthy. We live a very active lifestyle in a base camp to a big life here. Everything from skiing to golfing to sports to snowboarding. We like to get, get out and be healthy. And in part, I think it's because when we're out there outdoors and we're enjoying life and we're enjoying everything that the world has to offer, it, it helps us forget the tragedies and the hurt and the pain that actually exist underneath the surface that are always there. So on the drive-in, as I was saying before, I listened to a program that is a health program on Sunday mornings. Now, uh, I don't listen to much of it because I literally live three minutes from the church. Uh, But I usually will get some kind of tidbit, and it's always amazing to me how God's great providence, he allows something in the radio program to fit into the message. And so I'm going to share with you my three minutes of education from said radio program uh, this morning. This is what was shared on this radio program, that uh, mental health, the mental health crisis in the United States is skyrocketing. They said in this program uh, that in the last 10 years, they've seen a 400% increase in those who go to the ER for suicide. 
a 400% increase is quite a big number. Outside of that, they said this, this actually translates into one out of every eight ER visits in the United States of America. Now, I would say that alone would share with you, we have a problem. We have a big problem. The Bible actually says it this way, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then, of course, one of the favorite Christian Bible verses from Romans 3.23, for all, including you this morning, have fallen short to the glory of God. The way we teach this is actually that you are, as from the Bible's perspective, from the Bible's description, that you are born and shaped in iniquity. As a newborn child, there is sin in you. Even little Riker here, beautiful little Riker, has sin that exists within him. Now, I'm a father of four, so I've seen this played out. I know. The other day, just, just last night, we had Easter, an Easter gathering with my family. Kind of hard to do for us on a Sunday because of my job, and, and so everyone's hanging out. Before everyone's coming over, uh, my two-year-old is harassing my five-year-old, and my two-year-old uh, was drop-kicked by my five-year-old little girl. Yeah, yeah, let me, let me share something with you. I know some of you think that I'm a very aggressive human being. I have never taught my daughter how to drop kick anybody. Uh, she learned that on her own. Okay, it was born in her. She knew, little boy, in my face, foot to face, problem solved. And so then I end up in this parenting kind of dilemma here. What do I do? I know that my son needs to learn not to bug girls, and I need to let my little girl know, don't, you know, kick your brother in the face. At the same time, I thought to myself, well, maybe that's a lifelong thing I want her to have in the future in case some guy comes bothering her, dropkick him in the face. Very gospel-centered stuff. And, uh, hey, hey, I'm just, I'm just sharing with you that if you have children, if you've, if you've ever been around a young child, it is easy for them to learn. That is mine. It is not yours. It belongs to me. They steal. They cheat. They lie. I never taught them any of those things. None of my kids had a classroom setting on that from an early age. We're born in iniquity. The Bible says that it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when man was created perfect, perfect harmony with God, walking with God, perfect relationship with God. They were given a choice to continue in that relationship or to turn and to take and bite of the apple of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing so, in the decision that Adam and Eve made, sin entered into the world. See, what sin is ultimately defined as is living life according to your own rules and your own perspective and doing it your own way. And when we do it our own way, it ends up in broken relationships. It ends up in fractured, uh, unhealthy mindsets. And our society is just filled with this problem. Again, I don't think I have to convince you of this uh, too much further than maybe your own life. To ask you in your own life, if you've lived any length of time for the suffering that you've encountered, the injustices that have happened. You don't have to go very long to turn on CNN or Fox to realize that something is wrong in our political system. Something is wrong in our cultural relationships. Something is wrong within pop culture. It's broken and fractured to every degree. That is the picture of the big problem. Now, you got to talk about the bad news so you can get to the good news, yeah? you got to talk about the bad stuff so you can understand the good stuff, so you can understand the great grace, which now we move from a picture of the problem to a glance at the cross, a suffering servant. What we are taught within the gospel is that God saw that there was a big problem. And so God provided a solution to that problem because he loves his creation. 
And his solution was for himself to come from heaven to earth to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die a brutal death on a cross, and then to defeat death by being resurrected. On Friday night in our Good Friday service, we went through just the different places that Jesus walked. First of all, before he went to the cross, we can't forget this, Jesus lived a perfect 33 years. Do you know why Jesus lived a perfect 33 years? Because you can't live a perfect year. So he lived 33 of them. You and I don't have the ability to live a perfect life, but Jesus lived a perfect life to impute on the cross, which literally means to give us, to count to us that perfect life. And it's called the great exchange. Jesus gives us his perfect life, and he takes from us our sin. Before he goes there, he washes the disciples' feet. He loves them, a picture of him serving, a picture of service, a picture of love. And then he moves to the garden where he prays to prepare himself for the death that he will endure. Then he went through a joke of a trial. John Drollinger kept using the term. I like the term. I'm not sure you've heard it too much in the church. He said the, the trial of Jesus Christ to, be, uh, to, to basically be called a murderer or, a, a, I'm sorry, a, um, a betrayer. He called it a junk show. It's a good church term, right? The trial was a junk show. And he ended up being, being taken to the cross. He was beaten. He was mocked. And he was crucified. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he looked down at those who beat him, those who bruised him, those who spit upon him, and he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, the bad news is that you're a sinner. The good news is the gospel tells us that Jesus loves you anyways. That, in fact, the Bible says it this way from Romans chapter 5, verse 8. For God shows his love in us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the good news. Here's the amazing news of the gospel. In order to become a Christian, in order to know the love of God, to be reconciled to God, it's not something you can earn. It's something that's given to you. What Jesus did is he earned your salvation. We have the only faith in all faiths where there is nothing to be done to be saved, only to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? The good news is you can't earn it. You can't live a perfect life. You can't have a big life at this base camp that's big enough to earn your way to heaven. Jesus gives it to you as a gift, and he dies this brutal death on the cross. As a parent, one of the things that my wife and I at the stage we're at is trying to figure out how to best communicate this picture of Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Right? My oldest is eight years old. He's at the place where we could probably go a little bit deeper. And, and then for my, my five-year-old, she's at a very sensitive place. And my two-year-old, he's not quite there to handle the imagery and quite, quite the shock and awe of it. I had one parent ask me this last week, you know, what age do you think is appropriate to show my child the passion of the Christ? How many of you have watched the passion of the Christ? How many of you have watched it more than once? It's a difficult, a difficult movie to watch. The depiction is brutal. In fact, even culture, uh, secular society, when that movie launched, critiqued it as too violent. That it, They didn't want it to be released because it was too gnarly, too ugly, too bloody. I remember I was working when it came out. I was working at a church in San Diego with a staff of 200 employees, about 20 pastors, large church. And our pastor, that when that movie launched, he, he, uh, he purchased a whole theater for us for 200 of us to watch it together as a church family and leadership. And I remember watching it. I had a hat on. I tucked my hat under. I bawled like a baby. I don't think I spoke for two or three hours. I told a family this week, I said, the thing about that movie that's quite amazing, if you compare it to the biblical text and the accounts of the crucifixion, the movie actually didn't go far enough. 
It was bloodier than the movie depicted. It was more radical than the movie depicted. Isaiah prophesies and tells us that the beating was so brutal and so gnarly of Jesus Christ, so ugly that he was beaten beyond human recognition. You can even tell that he was a man. His beard was plucked from his face. The soldiers punched him with a bag over his head, asking him to prophesy, who hit you now, who hit you now? One of the questions that's asked in regards to Christianity is, my goodness, why is it so bloody and violent? Because of the big problem. You have to understand how big your sin is, how big of a problem it is, because Jesus had to go at great lengths to close the gap between you and himself. All understanding that he took that beating on your behalf, the beating that you deserve for rejecting God. All of it, though, shows the great love of God. Not only does he see your problem, but he's willing to do something about that problem. He spent six excruciating hours on the cross before they took his lifeless body from the cross and placed it in the grave. You know what the Bible tells us in regards to his beating? Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. Taking the 12 before the crucifixion, Jesus said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem. That's Jesus' way of saying we're going to the cross. I'm going to die. And everything that is written, did you hear that? Everything that is written, another way he said it is everything that was planned about the Son of Man, that is again speaking of Jesus, by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, he'll be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, and flogged, and they will kill him, and on the third day I will rise. You know what Jesus just said? He said, everything that I'm going to endure, all of my pain, all of my suffering, it's always been planned from the beginning. Do you know what we learn about that? We learn this. I have a great quote here. The betrayal, the mockery, the shame, the spit, the flogging, the murder, and so much more was planned. In other words, the resistance, the rejection, the unbelief, hostility were not a surprise to Jesus. They were, in fact, a part of the plan, and he says so. You know why that's a comfort to you and I? Because whatever your pain you're going through, whatever suffering you're going through, maybe you're one of the eight, maybe you're depressed and you feel lost, God is not surprised. In fact, he weeps over it. He's not shocked or dismayed. And the the reality is, is the cross shows us that he wants to use the suffering, use the pain to actually draw you closer to himself. Can you step into the reality this morning that it's quite possible that your suffering is going to be used by Jesus Christ, that your pain is going to be used for a purpose, just as his ultimate pain and his ultimate struggle is to draw you and I closer to himself this morning. The cross is a horrible, horrendous thing to look at. It was meant to dehumanize the person on it. So when anyone walked by, child, mother, father, soldier, walked by and said, that man's a betrayer. That man is a sinner. That man is deserving of death. He's a spectacle. And as he hung there, he quite possibly hung there completely bare, open wide. And again, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Again, after they took him from the cross, they placed Jesus in a tomb. He was buried like a king. Lazarus's tomb, perfectly set aside in a garden, 75 pounds of myrrh and spices were wrapped around Jesus, all to show that he was the king. And he was placed inside of that tomb for three days. And on the third day, he rose again, and he was resurrected. Church said, what? Amen. Let's peek into the tomb for a moment. Just a few days after the death. Now remember, Jesus had followers. His followers believed that he was going to be the Messiah. 
Their followers believed that he was going to overtake quite possibly the Roman rule, the Roman Empire, change the government, bring, bring peace to the earth. They've just seen their king crucified and mocked like a peasant. Now, understand this. They are broken people. And we have several different stories of where Jesus appears to people after his resurrection. Maybe you'll remember the one in John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene. While it was still dark, she goes to the grave. It's a few days later she goes. We don't know why. Maybe just to sit with someone that she loved. Maybe you've done that, gone to a graveside, just hung out, talked with them in the hopes that they can hear, draw near to them. Mary, Mary, it says, draws near while it's dark, and she stands and sees that the rock has been moved out of the way, that the tomb is empty. And out of nowhere, someone shows up and asks Mary, why are you crying? She perceives him to be who? Do you remember the story? The gardener. Right? It's a wealthy place. This guy's taking care of it to make sure that it's beautiful. What have you done with my Savior? What have you done with my friend? Where is his body? That's what she's asking. She can't tell it's Jesus. She's sitting there in the dark, whether it's the darkness of the night, whether it's the tears in her eyes, the weeping in her heart, the pain is keeping her from seeing that the Messiah is alive, standing right in front of her face. And then he reveals himself to her. And her sorrow turns to joy, and Mary becomes the very first evangelist in the Bible. She goes and tells the disciples, he's alive. Maybe you'll remember the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, verse 14. These two guys who saw Jesus' life, saw the perfect life lived. He also, he also, they also saw these two men, saw Jesus crucified. And we're told that on the day of the resurrection, on the day in which Jesus was resurrected, there's seven miles walking away from Jerusalem. So now get this here for a moment. These men are missing out. Imagine if they would have just waited a little bit, just a few more moments. And they're walking along, and they're having a conversation on this road, the road to Emmaus, and they're having a conversation about what it is that Jesus has done. They're wondering what's happening. And then who walks up behind them? After he's died, this guy shows up. They don't know it's Jesus. They can't tell it's Jesus. And what does Jesus say? creeps up on. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> oh, we're, we're talking about Jesus. You know what he says? He goes, who? Who are you talking about? And they say this to Jesus. They say, where have you been? You've been hiding under a rock? Have you not heard about this guy? And these two guys begin to tell Jesus about Jesus. <laughs> it's amazing. Do you know who you're talking to? I have no clue. Jesus keeps himself concealed. He sits down with them. He has dinner with them. We're also told that Jesus has an incredible Bible study with them. Tells them how everything in the Old Testament, everything from 2,000 years ago is pointing, pointing to Jesus, pointing to the resurrected king. And then he reveals himself all that they, all that he, uh, all of who he is, and they're dismayed and in unbelief that Jesus is alive. Maybe John chapter 20, verse 19, you remember this? I got to point to all this. Stick with me. He's resurrected. John 20, 19. The disciples are locked in a room fearing for their life after the death of Jesus. Do you know why? Because they're followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus now, because Jesus was crucified, they're fearful that they're going to follow in the steps of Jesus and that they're going to be crucified. So what do they do? They lock themselves in a room so the Pharisees can't find them. The doors are all locked. The description of the Bible says there's no way in. There's no way out. Who shows up in the middle of the room? Boom. I'm alive. 
And they're shocked, and they realize, oh, my gosh, he's, he's alive. And then the disciples go, and eight days later, they tell another disciple, his name is Thomas, doubting Thomas, guess what, Jesus is alive. You know what Thomas says? I'm not going to believe it unless I stick my hands in the scars and I put my hand into the side where he was pierced. I'm not going to believe it. Eight days goes by. Thomas is in another locked room. They're fearful for their life. Who shows up in the locked room? Jesus. Maybe you remember John 21. The disciples have gone fishing, a picture of them being fearful again and returning back to their, own li- their old lifestyle and their old, old way of, of making a living. And then Jesus reveals himself over a meal with fish with his disciples. We see Jesus choosing incredible, secretive ways to show up to his disciples. Remember Matthew 14, where he walks on water through the storm, and they think it's a ghost, but it isn't. It's Jesus. And then Jesus ultimately defeats death with what? In a very kind of backdoor way, he defeats death with death, and he sneaks life into the world through his own death. Ladies and gentlemen, can I just, can I just impress upon you, you may not feel Jesus. You may not see Jesus in your trial, but is it possible that he is sneaking up behind you right now? You know what I realize when I see these two men walking away from the gospel of Jesus metaphorically on the road to Damascus and Jesus is still chasing them down? What are you talking about? What are you doing with your life? Is it possible for some of you this morning that the Savior is breathing down your neck? Hey, what are you doing? How many donuts have you had? (laughs) The beautiful thing that I see in all of this is that Jesus, in the gospel, what we see is Jesus has the ability to go into any locked room of your life, any rebellion that you may be going through, and walk right up to you and bring you to salvation and bring you back to the gospel. As one commentator says, he was simply there in spite of the locked doors, which means that today in your life, Jesus can go where no one else can go. He can go where no counselor can go. He can go where no doctor can go. He can go where no lover can go. He can reach you and reach into you anywhere and anytime. There is no place where you are and no depths of personhood that you are which Jesus can't penetrate. Jesus' resurrection from the dead fits him to do what no one else can do. There's no one like him in all the universe. He is alive, and he is the one and only God-man. What he is capable of, you cannot imagine. And what it is, a healing wonder to contemplate that all the complex layers of your life, which neither you nor anyone else can understand, are completely familiar territory to him. Amen? Man, I thank the Lord. I thank Jesus that in my own life he saw fit to save me in spite of me. I think it's just an amazing thing to see God reach into people's lives that would say they'd never become a Christian, they'd never walk with Jesus, they'd never turn to religion. And I'll tell you what, I'll be the first one to tell you, Jesus is the most non-religious person to start a religion in the history of the world. He's not about earning your way. He's not about all the do's and the don'ts. He's about giving you eternal life. I was 11 or 12 years old when my mom came home and shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ, freeing my home from drugs, alcohol, pain, and suffering, and then finally eventually calling this broken kid from a small town into the ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ to see others heal and find healing in him as well. Come on, church. That's good news, isn't it? We've got to get some brothers up in here. I'm telling you. 
As Mary looks into the tomb, she simply is told this by one of the angels. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And the church said, he is risen what? Indeed. That is a peek into the tomb, my friends. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not in the tomb. You know what's interesting about almost any other individual who has started a religion? You can find their Mecca. You can go to the holy place. You can go to a mosque. You know what you can't find? You can't find a Mecca for Jesus because there is no Mecca because his body's not there. We don't know where he was buried. You know why we don't totally know where he was buried? Because you're not to worship the place where he was buried. You know why you can't find out exactly all the right places? You go to the Middle East, they'll tell you, we think it's this and we think it's that. Ultimately, what they're saying is, he lived in this general area. <laughs> but there's no, there's no artifact you can go to. And the, re- the reason is because we do not worship an artifact. We don't worship a dead, non-living thing. We worship an alive Messiah who has the ability to come into your life, into your heart, and you can worship him wherever you are at all times. Good news, church. Good news. So let me speak now of just a glimpse of a life lived with purpose and joy. What is the perfect death, the perfect life, and the perfect resurrection lean to? It leans to a life lived with a great purpose of joy. Here's the first thing that happens because of the crucifixion and then resurrection. Number one, God has defeated death. Death is no more for the Christian. There's a, a great story. Maybe you've heard of it. Lord of the Rings. How many of you have actually read through the Lord of the Rings? Watching the movie doesn't count. How many? Yeah. Hey, give them a round of applause for going through that. I'll tell you what. Reading the Lord of the Rings is a very different experience than watching it. Okay? And, and I remember I tried to tackle that book before kids, and I was like, dang, this is so much slower than I thought it was. There's a scene in the book, though, where Samwise Gamgee is is coming uh, back to life, if you will. He's awakening from just after the ring is destroyed. Now, remember in the story, Sam has not seen that Gandalf is truly alive, that Gandalf has been resurrected. And upon awakening after the ring is destroyed, this is exactly what Samwise says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. You know, Sam is asking Gandalf, now that he has seen Gandalf die and become resurrected from the dead, he's asking him, is it possible, Gandalf, that everything that is sad that has happened, everything that is evil that has happened, is it possible that all, that all things that are horrible in the world will become untrue? The answer in Christ Jesus is yes. All that is sad will be renewed. In fact, Revelations gives us a picture in chapter 21 where Jesus himself will come to you and wipe away every tear off of your eye. It'll all finally make sense because of the loving embrace that is found in Jesus Christ. A purpose of understanding that death has been dealt a blow by death and that all of your sins have been dealt with, that you are forgiven for all of the evil iniquity that you have done against God. And now you're finally free. 
You can finally say no to sin and yes to God. And you can have a fresh start. Jesus comes with bucket loads of brand new. Who doesn't like new stuff? Man, there's, I just like opening Amazon packages just for the smell. We all like new stuff. I've done counseling now for years, and every counseling appointment, anyone I've ever counseled, in essence, what they're asking for in counseling is, is it possible that you can give me a resurrection? Can you give me a new start? Whether it's marriage counseling or counseling with kids or pain or depression, everyone in the end is asking for a new, fresh start. My friends, Jesus gives us a new start. The Bible says that his mercies are new when? Every morning. How would you like that? A fresh start every morning. Why? Because the cross has the power to do that. Jesus has taken the old and given you the new. And anytime we wake up thinking, well, today's going to stink, we're diminishing the power of the cross. Do you think your sin is bigger than the death of God? My friends, uh uh-uh. It isn't. There's no way. Let me ask you the question here. Do you need a new start? Do you want a fresh go at things? It's interesting, if you follow through the Gospels, you'll see before the, the encounter of the disciples and then after the resurrection. Before the resurrection, you see the disciples are filled in passage after passage with anxiety and insecurity and confusion, discouragement, weakness, doubt, guilt, and fear. After the resurrection, you find the disciples filled with courage, confidence, purpose, joy, power, faith, forgiveness, hope, and peace. Who wants to be on that side of the list? Man, I want my life to be embodied upon that. And the life of Jesus gives me the ability to know that that's true. So here's the crescendo of it all. You can live in Tahoe, Truckee area, and you can forget about God, and you can live in an area that is a base camp to a big life. You can fill your life with all kinds of things to distract you. There's just so many things that you could do here to just not think about the world and its pain. Or you can look at Jesus as a base camp to an eternal life. I want to ask you this morning is where do you want to put your trust? Whose hands do you want to put your life in? Because it ultimately comes down to whose hands something is in. Let me give you a picture. I got a golf club here. Now, you put, you put a golf club. I didn't do this. I, I told someone earlier, this is for those of you who need to have Jesus beaten into your mind, right? I'm not going to do that. You put a golf club in the hands of Tiger Woods. I heard he just, he just you know, did something really incredible. Yeah? I, I don't even know what he did. I just know it was, like, really good. But Tiger Woods did something incredible with the golf club. Now, now you put a golf club in my hands. <laughs> oh, man. I, I have golfed one time at Marta's camp. I don't think they'll let me back there ever again. And thank God it was a scramble. I just was there for the sights. I was not putting any golf balls in the holes. You understand what I'm saying? You put a golf club in Tiger Woods' hands, and it becomes something special. You, you put a golf club in my hands, it's not worth anything. How about this one? You put a football, you put a football in the greatest quarterback in history. No, no, no. It is not Tom Brady. It is Joe Montana. <laughs> you put a football in the hands of Joe Montana, it, it turns into four Super Bowls, right, Josh? High school football coach here. You ready? Now, remember, I talk, someone said, I did this in the first service. They said, they, said, they said, you talked about giving all that money. If I hit somebody in the head with this, we're going to be giving someone else money. So you need to catch this. We're going to leave an impression here. All right, stand up. Good job, Josh. 
Always tuck. Always tuck. Get ready for the blow. Now, hey, 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 you put a, you put a football in my hands as the quarterback, and it's a problem. I'm going to get a KO. Right now, somebody, hey, you put, a, you put skis in the hands of someone like Bodie Miller. Now, yes, the, someone corrected me and let me know this morning. Those are not real ski poles. Those are for cross country. I know. I know. Okay. They're not real. I get it. They're for cross country. However, the point, the point in this is Bodie Miller can ski. If I ski, I'm going to blow out an ACL. There's a problem here. I, it's, you want the skis in the right hands. Now, same kind of deal here. You put a snowboard in, in, on my feet. And, and I'm trying to grab it and do whatever. And again, it's two blown ACLs, an angry wife, and a few days in the hospital. However, you put a snowboard, you put a snowboard in Sean White's feet. You put a snowboard with him, and he's going to win some championships. Or uh, our own Andy Finch. You put, a, you put a snowboard in Andy Finch's hands, and underneath his feet, he wins a Vans Triple Crown and the half-pipe multiple winner of the Grand Prix, and then he gets fourth place on the amazing race. You want to snowboard with Andy Finch. You don't want to snowboard with me. You do not want to snowboard with me. Now, you put a basketball in Michael Jordan's hands, and you're going to win some championships. No, don't, don't put it in LeBron's hands. Put, put it in the hands of Michael Jordan. You're going to end up with the best-selling shoe for years, 30 years. Uh, you're going you're gonna to have some of the greatest dunks of all time. Now, I heard one pastor say it this way. He helped me out with this illustration. He said, uh, you, you, you put a basketball in Jesse Richardson's hands, and I take a few shots. You know what's going to happen? You're going to have enough bricks to build a brand new house. <laughs> now, let me tell you what. You know, it depends on where you put what you put in someone's hands. It makes all the power. Now, you put a couple nails in my hands. That doesn't mean a thing. Put the nails in the hands of the Son of God and you get the salvation of the world. It's all about whose hands it's in. See, as we leave here, I want you to consider is your marriage in your own hands? Is it the hands of Jesus? Is your depression in your own hands? Or is it in the hands of Jesus? Is raising your children in your own hands? Or is it in the hands of Jesus? My friends, if you put things in your own hands, you make a mess of it. Ask any culture over any generation, and you'll see sin begets sin begets sin begets sin. But you put your hands in the life of Jesus, and all of your pain and all of your sorrow finally have a purpose. Amen? As the band comes up to sing, Someone had asked me, you know, Pastor Jesse, what does it look like to really put my life into the hands of God? Here's the good news. It's incredibly easy. The first thing is you have to confess. You have to confess that you have need. You have to confess that in many ways that you've taken things into your own hands and you've made a mess of it. You've got to confess that you're a sinner. As Pastor Tim Keller has said over and over again, the only thing that is needed for salvation is need, and we're too prideful to admit we have need. The first step is to confess that you need Jesus, that you need salvation, that you need a healer. Right, I used the illustration in the first service. It's be good for me to share it to you here now. Is, is you know, if you send me down the hill on that snowboard, 
especially if I go with Andy and he takes me down some black diamond thing. There's a good chance I'm going to hit a tree. I'm going to break a rib. I'm going to bust an elbow, and, and I'm going to blow out my ACLs, and then I'm going to go down by the, the emergency room. I'll walk over the emergency room all jacked up and broken. Andy's going to be carrying me over there, and, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to say, hold on, dude, we can't go in yet. Why? i got to get better first. Let me go get fixed, and then I'll come back. Now, if you're going to trust the doctor to fix you physically, why wouldn't you trust Jesus to fix you spiritually? This, this building, it isn't about the building. It's about a bunch of broken people looking to the one who can heal us and fix us and mend us back to be in right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's to confess that you have need. And it's to place your hands in the life of God and say, Lord, I'm going to live my life according to your ways, according to your word, according to faith in you, because you're that good. And whenever you're struggling, you look to the cross where you saw God himself die on your behalf. Nobody's done that for you, my friends, except for God alone. Nobody's worthy of living your life for them except for God alone. You confess with your mouth, and then you respond and you put your life in his, and you live according to him. Admit you have need. Isn't Easter great? You know, Brad said, I think we were praying as staff this week, he said, you know what? Maybe you prayed it on Friday, I don't know. Everything blends together during the season. Every day is Easter for the Christian. Every Sunday is Easter for the Christian. Every day is a new day. Every moment's a new moment because His grace is that large. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You came on our behalf, that You lived a perfect life, that You died the death that we deserved, and You defeated death by coming out of that grave. And now, Lord, you offer salvation as an invitation to anyone here. I pray, Lord, during the singing time and during this time of prayer now that if there are any people here who want to give you their life, that they would recognize now, Lord, that all they have to do is pray to you and say, Jesus, I need you. If that's you this morning and you want to pray that prayer, Jesus, I need you, go ahead and do that now. Offer him your life. Don't leave here without without really knowing in your heart that you're in right relationship with him. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation you give us, the gift of eternal life, Lord. Forget base camp to a big life. It's all about a relationship for a big eternity. We thank you and we rejoice now, Lord. In Jesus' name, church said, amen. God bless you. Hey, friends, we're going to close in a couple songs. Will you stand with us? This is an opportunity for you to respond to God's goodness, his grace. Uh, let's join together as we, uh, we celebrate. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? 